This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hey there. Hi. Welcome to episode 31 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. It feels good to be getting back into a semi-regular rhythm, i got to say, and I was feeling really positive about where we're taking this thing. And then last night... Somebody messaged me to say that they were enjoying the show and could I please help them to find my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash urbanastronomerpodcast, by the way. Anyway, it was great to hear that somebody was giving me money, but really the thing that touches me is just knowing that people are out there taking time out of their day to listen to my little show, and, and apparently they like it enough to reach out and tell me. That's so nice and wonderful, and it makes me very happy. I've gotten out of the habit of thanking you all for listening, so thank you. It means a lot to me. Anyway, to business. Last episode, I hinted that we would be doing an interview again who had no connection at all to South African astronomy. Well, I'm about to play that recording for you now. A few weeks back, I spoke to Clem Unger, who lives in Australia and serves in his spare time in the Ambassador Program for the OSIRIS-REx mission, which will be arriving at the asteroid Bennu in December this year, although it begins its approach in just over a month from the time this episode airs. Clem is an amateur astronomer like myself and might even be back on the show in the near future. After the interview, we will also be continuing with our supernova story, although it'll only be a short one today, just cleaning up a few loose ends on a stellar evolution before returning to our example star on its road to exploding as a supernova. But meanwhile, here is Clem Unger. Okay, can you just tell us um, what is your name, what you do, uh, what's your background, where do you work, all that? Hmm. Okay, so my name's uh, Clem Unger. Um, I um, live in Australia in a place called Mornington, which is sort of an hour southeast of Melbourne. And uh, as you may recognize from my accent, I'm not born in Australia, originally from Germany, and I came out here um, 22 years ago this year, time flies, mm -hmm. and uh, my uh, background um, originally is um, chemistry. I'm an industrial chemist, chemical engineer. I've got a um, little business degree on the side as well, and um, yeah, 20-something years ago, I made a lifestyle decision and came out to Australia to the great horror of my dad in Germany, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm, st I'm still still here and um, enjoying it um, and um, yeah I'm uh, working in um, a totally different field now I'm, I'm mainly doing consulting in in the non-for-profit uh, sector area and um, uh, mainly with with organizations uh, um, involved in disability uh, management and um, I'm on the private side for oh, over 14 years and that makes me really feel old now um, an amateur astronomer um, so my granddad back in Germany was an avid stargazer and that's sort of one of my earliest memories going outside with him and uh, that was the times where light pollution wasn't quite what it is these days and uh, we had a fabulous time and I uh, joined the 
the local astronomy club over there that's back in a place called Darmstadt, which is south of Frankfurt. And um, yeah, never looked back. And um, then I came here to Australia. And um, first of all, you have to get obviously used to the fact that uh, you the constellations you from the north you can see from here are upside down. So it's a bit weird uh, when you have Orion suddenly uh, the other way around, and and uh, so you need to learn your your stars again down here, and uh, especially finding the the southern uh, pole is a bit more interesting <laughs> than uh, when you to align your telescope uh, than than up uh, up in the northern hemisphere. But uh, you know you get the hang of it, and um, yeah, so fabulous. And I. I Ever since I'm, I'm in, in astronomy and I'm lucky, I've got a very understanding wife who allowed me to build a uh, an observatory in my backyard. And um, so I've got this, this lovely dome out there, which allows me, um, weather permitting, just to go outside and, and um, you know, uh, do my thing and, and not have to set up and worse uh, – you know, dismantle all your gear after a long night and then with cold fingers drop an eyepiece, which is a bit of a pain. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, if anyone has the opportunity, I highly recommend it. So you get so many more hours out of it. So it's really great. So that's that's it in a nutshell, pretty much. What telescope mm. do you have in that observatory? Uh, sorry? What telescope have you got in there? Um, I've got a six-inch uh, refractor um, in there, which I predominantly use for uh, photography. So, um, I mean, I, I take the eyepieces out. Uh, initially, I bought it to have sort of the best of both worlds, something that is still uh, portable, even though I haven't done that for years now. And um, and you can visually observe, but uh, it's it's very very good um, for for planetary work. And I'm sort of hunting the odd little minor planet down, um, so it's really good for that. And um, I've got um, a direct drive mount, which can be a little bit temperamental. It's an Austrian um, ASA mount, um, so totally new learning curve there to get that going. And uh, but once you master that, uh, it rewards it with um, um, unguided exposure. So it's it's um, it's it's good, but it takes its time. So you and it's uh, you can't drive um, the telescope without a computer. That's probably the downside. So I miss a little bit. You know, just um, if you have it in the field, plonk it down and switch it on. That you can't do this with that. That's um, sort of a little bit a downer, but because of the observatory, it's not happening. So I just open the the dome and off we go. Well, I suppose you have a that's uh, mm. something set up there permanently, or yeah, I, I have a dome. Uh, I, I, <clears throat> honestly, I would have preferred actually um, an, an observatory with a roll-off roof um, because. Uh, I didn't have the space, so I had to settle for a dome um, and. What I don't like with the dome is the fact that you miss out on this all-sky experience. Um, you you uh, you have only this um, opening in in the roof, and and um, 
your software inside and it tells you where the, you point your telescope, but uh, you might miss out actually on a nice uh, fireball or something like mm. that. And, and um, that's, I think, a little bit uh, negative. And also the fact that a dome is ex exponentially dearer than, than a roll-off roof observatory. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, it's... It works well, and um, it's it's <clears throat> nicely automated. So if you point the telescope somewhere, the the dome rotates with it, and um, so that took a little while to get that going, <laughs> but uh, it's, um, it's it's good. I mean, te technically, I could sit inside here and and do it remotely, but um, I think that's um, I, I think then I would rather subscribe to iTelescope and <laughs> and let it all. <laughs> It's funny, you're describing yeah. my ideal setup. Now, I remember oh, 20, almost 30 years ago, the idea of not finding an object by eye, star hopping painfully one bit at a time was cheating, you know. But uh, a bit older now, <laughs> sitting there getting cramps in the in the dew. <laughs> I don't know, it's not so much fun I, anymore, I, you know. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree, but I have to say, I mean, if you have um, any of the, the uh, you know the planetarium softwares which link into your mountain sky x and and stellarium and whatever there is and you just uh plan your observing session and then you you tick it through it's just amazing i mean it's come a long way and and when i think back to the times with my granddad and i had a small um, refractor and then a Newton at, at home and you, you basically lugged it around and you pointed and you, as you said, you star hop. That's, I mean, it's, uh, very ancient these days. And, mm. um, I, I mean, it gets, it gets people uh, quicker, uh, into the, into the hobby. But on the other side, you, you lose out a little bit because um, that star hopping teaches you actually where you are, whereas if you just push a button, it's not necessarily so good. Mm. So, uh, but, Especially with yeah, the astrophotography. No. You know, I, I have a very old mount. It's got uh, – it's, and this is, just a, this is just a budget problem. It's not a – this is not my, my, my choice to do it the hard way. But, uh, wow, mm. I tell you, the, the amount of time I take setting up, carrying everything downstairs – getting my polo alignment right and then the battery dies and i haven't taken a single photo yet so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i fondly remember when i uh, was sitting in 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 the deepest winter in in germany somewhere outside and i didn't ha actually at times have a mount which was uh um driven so i i manually guided with the guide scope um um the mount and 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 uh, uh and obviously it was not digital cameras uh it was all film and we experimented around with hypersensitizing film with with hydrogen i'm 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 surprised that we didn't burn the house down <laughs> and uh, so uh it is it's amazing and now you 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 can buy these um fantastic uh, ccd cameras which are cooled and and it's just yeah, uh, it's a quantum leap ahead. And um, if you see results from people like uh, Damien Peach, with a lot of uh, your listeners would, would uh, know, um, chap mm. from, from the UK, does the most amazing uh, um, planetary uh, uh, photographs with a Celestron 
14 and and um, I mean you you would have killed for that uh, uh, at that time this is unbelievable uh, it's, uh, very professional and and um, and I think it will continue like that so it's and uh, it makes makes the hobby even more rewarding than it ever has been I'd say uh, if it wasn't only for the light pollution which is creeping in everywhere oh, yeah yeah all right, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, can you tell us? Um, I believe you are involved with the Osiris Rex mission. What is yeah. that? Okay, Osiris Rex is uh, a current uh, NASA mission which is uh, run in conjunction with the University of Arizona, and uh, it goes to. Uh, near asteroid uh, with the name of Bennu and um, it is a sample return mission so the spacecraft at the moment is underway and it um, is expected to arrive at the asteroid um, this year uh, mid of August and um, it will then uh, similar to uh, the Rosetta mission uh, a lot of people know um, go into uh, a very extensive survey orbit around the asteroid and then um, in 2020 the whole thing will culminate in um, an attempt to acquire a sample from the surface um, which then uh, will uh, hopefully be safely returned uh, to Earth in um, a clone of the uh, Stardust uh, sample return capsule, so similar uh, uh, technology. And in 2023, hopefully it lands in Utah on a salt lake. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. Nice. And uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is a – OSIRIS-REx is um, – Again, one of these lovely NASA acronyms. I suppose they have someone mm -hmm. sitting in a back room simulate IKEA, th thinking of names probably all day long. And uh, so it's it stands for Origins, um, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer. So um, obviously long, long-winded words. So Osiris Rex. Um, <laughs> Was uh, quicker over the tongue, so <laughs> <laughs> and um, like um, NASA has uh, domestically in the U.S. Um, a a group of what they call Solar Systems uh, Ambassadors, which are it's only open to U.S. citizens. Uh, at least that's my last um, sort of information. Uh, but. Um, with Osiris Rex, um, um, the group around the principal investigator, his name is Dante Loretta from um, University of Arizona, decided to um, cast their net a little bit wider. And, and um, I mean, the, there is a lot of uh, ambassadors out there, the majority, of course, in the US, but uh, you'll find some dotted around the world. And I'm one of them um, here in Australia. To my knowledge, the only one in Australia, actually, and um, it um, is thought to basically tell the general public about the mission um, and uh, why it's important to to send missions to uh, a near-Earth asteroid like Bennu and what we can learn from it, and um, also um, apart from the actual science. Um, 
do a little bit of STEM outreach and, and hopefully sort of spark the interest of um, some young students who are uh, in grade seven to um, yeah, grade 12 here in Australia to uh, maybe look into this at, as a career in, in um, space science and, and engineering. And, uh, um, so um, that there's actually something out there um, you, you can um, make a career out of. So, um, and that's what I'm doing predominantly. I go to uh, schools. Most of my talks are um, in, in schools and um, it's, it's uh, quite nice to see it when the kids um, look at the presentation and I've got lots of videos in it. So the launch of the mission and um, the, the uh, research group has a fabulous uh, um, assortment of educational short videos you can use, um, how the sample will be acquired and so on. And um, so you, you um, can captivate the audience nicely with that and, and it's very rewarding. So I do that pro bono, so it's my hobby and, and um, I, um, yeah, you get something out of it and, and uh, it's very enjoyable. Yeah, well, I can understand that. I mean, everything I'm doing here, this podcast and the website also, it's just to, you know, just to, just to share what we do and uh, get people excited about it. And But uh, it's, it's important because it's astronomy. That's sort of an observation I made uh, uh, around here. It's it's sort of a uh, the bit sort of the the poor relative. I mean, it's not much mentioned in school, and and uh, um, you find when uh, when you approach um, um, science staff and and you tell them about it, uh, they're usually excited. They jump on it because. There is not much out there, um, not many other um, incursions happen uh, at schools. And uh, unfortunately, the science um, teachers are not always very experienced when it comes to astronomy. So um, I hope to, you know, um, wake some interest there as well. And if you pass, say, a meteorite around in the room and people... Um, the students can take it in their hand and it's, you know, you say, look, this is actually probably the oldest thing you ever hold, held in your hand. You know, it's a few mm-hmm. billion years old. And, and uh, um, that's usually, you know, when you, you see uh, the penny drop sometimes with some <laughs> kids and, and it's really, it's really fun and I, I like it. And um, so, um, yeah, and I hope um, I will have in the future uh, always time to do it because obviously school um, and, and normal work often is at the same time. So, um, but I've been fortunate to be able to to um, set some time aside for it. Mm-hmm. Are there? Well, let me rephrase it. Um, so, with the mission, you mentioned um, when the when the craft is arriving and that thing. Um, are there any other highlights? Um, that are always watching out for uh, like interesting times when there's going to be um, information coming out or or footage to, that we can see. I mean, definitely, uh, what I would uh, follow on um, the Osiris Rex website, which is uh, asteroidmission.org, um, and uh, is the arrival of um, the probe in in August uh, because. 
at the moment, uh, Bennu is um, like most other asteroids, just just a, a dot in a star field, and um, so it will be quite exciting when when uh, the spacecraft actually is on approach and and similar like uh, you know Pluto and 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 uh, the Dawn mission at at um, Vesta and and Ceres, you actually suddenly you get every day you get a better image and and uh, I, I expect that to happen and it will be really exciting to actually see um, what um, the surface structure of Bennu so it does uh, have a camera on board like, and I know some missions they yeah, it's, it's, they uh, don't for some reason it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like uh, Juno where actually mm-hmm. the, the the camera was an afterthought to put it on so um, I think um, for all space missions, uh, just to get this public buy-in, uh, I, I do believe uh, there has to be a camera on board. And uh, when it comes to Osiris Rex, uh, there is a very extensive uh, camera suite on board, which uh, will um, really um, analyze uh, the the surface and 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 composition of um, of the asteroid very very closely because um, the um, the composition is important. Uh, we want to know um, what uh, Bennu can tell us because it it's a a near Earth asteroid. It's a, a, um, a carbonaceous uh, asteroid, so um, one of the the rarer sort. And um, it comes every six years uh, close to Earth. And um, there is a remote possibility that um, it could um, get even closer and strike Earth. Um, very remote chance, but still. And um, as of the moment, we obviously, as as um, humans, have no um, no means of deflecting an asteroid. And the more we know about them, and and uh, the more we learn uh, down the track, we obviously can hopefully do something about it. And uh, Bennu is one of these. Um, uh, candidates. It's um, about 500 meters in in diameter. Has roughly the shape of of a walnut and um, rotates uh, once in four four and a half hours, roughly. And um, yeah, so if something like that hits us, um, that can really ruin your day. Um, and um, so the more we know, the better it is. So hence. Uh, Osiris-Rex is one of these key missions um, that are important to learn um, about uh, these near-Earth objects. And uh, there is a few other missions out there. I mean, you've got currently the Japanese mission Hayabusa Mm -hmm. out there um, and um, similar. Um, So you, you, you can sort of deduct the trend a little bit. So I think the um, the reality that um, if something like that happens and the consequences has sunk in with the decision makers and and it's a good thing so to send these missions out there and learn and and hopefully um, then uh, uh, come up with a solution what we can do um, to to prevent uh, an asteroid strike which would be really not good for us at the moment. <laughs> When we were chatting uh, a few days or a few weeks ago, um, 
I was asking about you know citizen science projects, and you mentioned um, target asteroid. Um, do you yep. know how much do you know about that? Uh, what what can um, ta target asteroids is a um, a program run by the same research group, and um, <clears throat> it um, reaches out to um, amateurs who have equipment sort of eight inch telescopes and up uh, and do observations um, photographically of a selected target list of um, asteroids and report their observations back to the team um, because uh, you you just don't get um, the manpower um, with professional observatories to verify orbits, etc., of of um, asteroids, and that's where um, amateurs um, have a, a really really good place in 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 science and research. And um, these research teams are really grateful for for um, amateurs, and you can make a really um, meaningful contribution to um, yeah, our hobby and astronomy as a whole. So it's, it's, it's a good thing, it's very rewarding. Um, you obviously need to have equipment of a certain size, but um, just by some of the, uh, the people I know and I'm familiar with, um, that's not a problem. It's, it's more the dedication of time and, and um, you know, going out there and take the photos. But uh, it's called Target Asteroids, there's links also via the asteroid mission um, website, so I'm sure um, that uh, the team will be grateful if uh, some people uh, might have a look at it. Great, thanks. Um, just a bit of bit of a sidetrack here. Um, it just occurred to me while, while while you were talking earlier about um, about about your work with the Cyrus Rex and visiting schools and so on. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had people uh, like moon landing deniers and flat earth types confront you about this, asking you to confess that you're <laughs> that you're making it all up or some such <laughs> nonsense? Um, actually, I have to say, not so much in schools. Um, I, I think they've got their head all screwed on the right way. And, and um, I think especially the kids, which are really networked these days, um, I, I think they... Um, they believe it because they're all very tech savvy and and uh, so the fact that someone you know can go up to the moon and walk around on it um that's that's definitely is not questioned i think i get it more um with some of the the older uh, um, audience i've got um, uh, one of my hobbies um or pastimes is I, I collect sort of space memorabilia so if i can afford it that is and um so like flown artifacts from apollo missions and so on and and um so uh, and every now and then you get it so i said do you think they really were there and i said yeah yes uh, <laughs> they actually they actually were and it's um you know, uh, uh, it, 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 ama it amazes me that, um, you know, um, you would be able to, uh, first of all, uh, get a fake story like that past uh, the almost 400,000 people who worked on the Apollo missions for starters. And um, then um, 
past um, the Russian uh, uh, competitors who very closely looked what was going on. I mean, it would have been and they actually fabulous. congratulated them afterwards. You know, why Absolutely. would they do that if they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing would have would have been better than than uh, you know they finding out it was all happening somewhere um, in 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 the American desert somewhere. So uh, look, uh, of course it's real, and and I've been fortunate to to um, meet some moonwalkers, and and um, every time you you actually in the presence of someone like that, they are. Um, it's it's a it's a special type of person, or any astronaut as a as a matter. So like Chris Hatfield and so on, they they have this aura of you know they don't have to prove anything um, mm. around them. And, um, uh, I I find that immensely inspiring, and and um, yeah, to to walk up to. Um, you know, Buzz Aldrin and tell him it's all a fake, I think uh, is, is is just an insult. So, um, yeah. I believe he's treated it as an insult. Didn't, didn't, he, didn't he punch that guy at all? Yeah. <laughs> kept harassing him and eventually he lost his temper. <laughs> yeah, he, he floored someone and uh, that was, uh, I think he was a bit younger then, but uh, yeah, but you know, uh, I've I've seen him a, a couple of times, and and um, he's he's uh, you know um, he's very opinionated, and 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 um, you know he's got an awful lot of experience, and and uh, so I think uh, also as respect for his um, colleagues um, from from Apollo One, who who you know gave their lives or lost their lives in in the pursuit of getting there uh, i think of course it's an insult and you don't want to hear stuff like that so um and, and i mean if you look at it this way uh, uh, <clears throat> with the the gear they had and what's out there now um they they went to the moon and back and 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 uh uh, the the computing power in in the average smartphone is better than what they had in the command module. So um, hello, I mean that's uh, amazing. It take it takes balls and and special type of person to do that. Yeah. If people want to know more or be kept up to date, or where can people go to learn more? Or well, um, first of all, astronomy in general. Um, if you're in South Africa, talk to Alan. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, uh, if there is a is a local astronomy club wherever you are, um, have a look um, and um, speak to them. Um, usually, um, these people are very friendly, and and um, especially if you're new to the hobby, um, go there and and you get a helping hand. Especially if you consider buying telescope. Um, it's always good if you have someone who's um, experienced to um, help you to avoid these initial mistakes and buying something wrong and then being disappointed and, and starting the hobby the wrong way. Um, if you're interested in, in OSIRIS-REx, um, have a look at um, the mission website. I mentioned it earlier. It's www.asteroidmission.org. 
and um, there's plenty of information on there, uh, inclusive mission overviews, uh, what the spacecraft looks like, um, key dates of the mission, and, and of course, news updates when something new happens. So, uh, as I mentioned, August is sort of a key milestone um, this year when the um, spacecraft arrives at um, the asteroid. Definitely, definitely have a look there. And, um, yeah, NASA maps, uh, website, uh, nasa.org, uh, good um, um, sort of entry point in having a look around what's going on out there. And uh, if anyone is interested in, yeah, talking to me, um, if you're in Australia, but anywhere, really, um, I'd say I give my contact details to Alan. So um, if uh, someone's interested, um, contact Alan and, um, yeah, I'd be more than happy to to chat and, and um, take it from there. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been great chatting to you. Absolute pleasure. Last episode, we talked about the power source that makes stars shine, nuclear fusion. I explained how, thanks to gravity and the gas laws, contracting clouds of gas will get hotter and denser at their cores until the temperature and pressure are high enough that naked hydrogen atoms, which are really just individual protons, will overcome their enormous dislike of each other and collide, resulting in a deuterium nucleus, which is made from one proton and one neutron. And we glossed over how the presence of a neutron makes a proton much easier to approach, so that collisions between these deuterium nuclei are a whole huge amount less unlikely to happen. And we talked about how this leads to various sequences of possible reactions that result in the formation of helium in the core of every star, and that this is not only what provides the enormous amounts of energy needed to fight off the relentless crush of gravity, but also what creates enough extra energy to warm up the rest of the gas and make stars as bright and hot as they are. But that was a bit of a, a, bit of a simplification. The thing is, as I hinted at in the first part of the series, it's all a little bit unpredictable just how much gas is going to be available to make your star in the first place. So some stars are relatively small while others are absurdly huge. And it turns out that the amount of gas that goes into a star, its mass, is probably the most important variable in predicting what type of star you're going to get. So since this is going to be a short bit, let's, let's talk through the possibilities as we currently understand them. Previously, we talked about how a collapsing core of gas in one of these big clouds might run out of material and end up nothing more than a warm, dense sphere of gas and dust compressed at the center into liquids and solids. A planet, basically. But if it's big enough in the neighborhood of our own Jupiter, then the core temperature and pressure can get quite high. Almost hot enough to begin nuclear reactions, but not quite. Where does the energy come from? Well... It's simply all the kinetic energy of the gas falling inwards, ramming into the gas that's already there and compressing it. And as per those gas laws I keep harping on about, that gives you heat so that they shine dimly in infrared. And since it's big, it takes a very, very long time for that heat to radiate out into space, and so it'll stay hot for billions and billions of years. But if it's a bit bigger anything more than 13 times the size of Jupiter, then we enter the zone where nuclear can begin. Deuterium fusion. See, earlier we talked about hydrogen atoms fusing to make deuterium, but the thing is that some deuterium already exists naturally. Any volume of hydrogen gas is going to contain a mix of the various isotopes of hydrogen, which include deuterium. 
And you'll remember that while the proton-proton collisions are rare and hard to force, deuterium reactions are relatively easy. So the deuterium that's already naturally inside the core actually starts fusing at much lower temperatures and pressures than the proton-proton reaction. This object, this core of gas inside a larger cloud, isn't massive enough to reach the high temperatures and pressures needed for standard hydrogen fusion, which means that there is no source of deuterium, but it is big enough to fuse the deuterium that was already there. So we're kind of in a gray zone between planet and star, and we call this object a brown dwarf. Because there's such a limited supply of fuel, they typically last less than a billion years, sometimes only for a few million. And when the deuterium fuel runs out, they just stop. Game over. Brown dwarfs are generally hot, but not as hot as stars. Not hot enough to glow in visible light. Their surface temperatures are all below 1000 degrees Celsius. Now, if our starting cloud was bigger, we get a hotter, more massive star. You get a core that can sustain true fusion, combining protons to make deuterium, as in the nuclear reactions that we talked about last episode. As the star burns, generating heat in its core, it starts to form convection currents that... Um, uh, with cooler material close to the surface falling in and the hotter stuff rising. So as the hydrogen gradually gets converted into helium, the entire star slowly churns, stirring and mixing. The helium ash spreads out and fresh hydrogen is constantly brought into the hot core to keep the reactions going. These stars are small. They have surface temperatures between two and 4,000 kelvins and last for a very, very long time. According to theory, they should keep going for trillions of years, but since that's almost 100 times older than the universe, nobody's ever watched one for long enough to confirm this. These stars are called red dwarfs. They're as close to eternal as you can get, and they are by far the most common type of star in the universe. Probably about 80% of all stars in our own Milky Way galaxy are red dwarfs. Right, now, make that cloud even bigger. You end up with a core that's hotter and more massive with a much larger volume of material around it. Unlike in a red dwarf, however, there is an area between the convection zone and the core called the radiative zone. It's called this because the heat moves through it directly by means of radiation. It's, it's photons traveling, carrying the energy. There is no convection. That only happens further out towards the surface in the convection zone. And that means that the gas, or rather the plasma, doesn't move. No movement means helium can't leave the core and fresh hydrogen can't enter. So unlike the red dwarf, which constantly cycles material in and out of the core, we now have a star with nothing moving in or out of the core. The hydrogen that's there slowly burns into helium and is not replaced. Eventually, the hydrogen runs out. These stars have a lifespan measured in billions of years, not trillions. And so if we look widely enough, we can see examples of all stages of these stars' lives, which has turned out to be very helpful in understanding how they are born, how they grow, age, and die. These stars are called yellow dwarfs, and our own sun is a fairly typical example. Unlike red dwarfs and brown dwarfs, they don't stop burning when they run out of hydrogen. They switch fuels and metamorphosize into something much bigger and fiercer. You get bigger stars, of course, which shine hotter and burn faster and only live for a few tens of millions of years and live far more exotic, if shorter, lives before exploding a supernova and leaving behind a neutron star or even a black hole. Naturally, these are the ones that we're most interested in. But I'm going to stop now. 
and leave that story for the next episode. I mentioned last episode that I was taking on the role of Director of the Citizen Science Section of the Astronomical Society of South Africa. Well, as of the most recent meeting of the Committee of ASA, this post is now official, so I can now get to work. One of my first acts as director will be to try and build relationships between ESA members and other societies involved in citizen science around the world, as well as the teams behind citizen science projects. And if you're an ESA member or are considering joining up and are involved in citizen science or thinking about it, please visit the ESA website at http assaasaaoacoza and find the page for the citizen science section. The page is still under construction as I record this, but it will soon have some information for you along with contact details. Our goal is to support you in any form of amateur science, whether it's traditional amateur science like observing variable stars or the sorts of modern work that that are what we normally think of as citizen science, like Galaxy Zoo or Moon Mappers or what have you. And of course, we want to recognize your contribution above what you're already getting from the projects themselves. On the flip side... Uh, I'd like your support in return. The annual Scopex exhibition is coming up soon in September. As always, it'll be held at the Military History Museum in Johannesburg. We're still confirming details, exhibits, sponsors and speakers, so I'd recommend checking out the website at www.scopex.co.za for updates. I can confirm, however, that we are flying Robert Ormerod as our special guest speaker. Robert is an award-winning photographer from Scotland who has worked for National Geographic, Vice Magazine, The New Yorker, and many, many more. He'll be presenting a talk on photographing the Northern Lights, which I'm personally quite looking forward to. Anyway, that's all we have for the show today. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoy the show and know anybody else who might be interested in listening you should send them over to www.urban-astronomer.com. They will be able to play through the archives and will find the subscriber links for whatever platform they normally use for listening to podcasts. Or they can just search for Urban Astronomer on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or pretty much any other podcast directory you can think of. If you know of one that doesn't have me listed, let me know and I'll fix it. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on any of those platforms, well, that would also be lovely and greatly appreciated. If, on the other hand, you want to offer something more concrete, well, I do have a Patreon account. I don't have a huge number of patrons on there, which is fine since my expenses are low, but if you'd like to join them, head on over to patreon.com slash urbanastronomerpodcast or just click the Patreon link on urbanastronomer.com. If you'd like to hear more from me, besides what's on the podcast, I'm on Twitter at uastronomer and we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash urbanastronomer. And if you'd like to reach out to me, ask questions or correct mistakes that you've heard, you can mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or leave a comment on the show notes page. And uh, I guess that's it. So thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so to make sure you catch the next episode as soon as it airs. And until then, clear skies. Clear skies.